0: The views that I express on this podcast are mine, and the same for our co host, Juan Pablo. Well, they're his. To panoptic relating theories of communication power and technology to practical institutional issues and everyday life welcome to the podcast okay so this is the third of our three episode series on strategic communication and uh, in the first of our series we discussed the socratic method so it seems to me Juan, that uh, socrates in plato's republic was really just trying to impress his friends by cross-examining and embarrassing prosimachus over and over again. <laughs> so he was just flaunting his intellect. Yep, as he was
1: as he was uh,
0: commonly wont to do. So I think we came to some consensus that the Socratic method, which is purported to uncover truth through a dialectical process, can function as a kind of results-driven strategy in practice. Then in, our, uh, in the second of this series, we discussed uh, the practice of strategic communication, where strategic communication refers to communicating with intent to influence others to modify their beliefs, attitudes, and or behaviors. And uh, we talked about getting to yes and never split the difference, offering up a series of strategic uh, actions, although um, that term will mean something else. We'll dig into it, but uh, to get more value out of negotiation. So um, I argued that we are probably fundamentally strategic because we are partly selfish and want to affect the world in ways that create utility for us. And I argued that strategic communication can be essential to building stronger relationships and helping people in general work together to achieve good things. Okay, so now we're here. It's 8 o'clock at night on a Tuesday. Yeah. And we both had a long day. And now I'm going to hand it off to you, Juan. Well, what are we going to do about all this? Well, you
1: know, I'm going to introduce uh, Monkey and the Wretch. Right? At uh, 8 o'clock on a Tuesday night, I'm going to talk about philosophy, as we tend to do in this podcast to sort of throw uh, things off kilter. So we talked about strategic communication last episode, but today we're going to talk about what a philosopher has to say to us about strategic communication, which is going to be very specific uh, to his own concepts of what communication is in the first place, and which might not line up exactly with what you mean by strategic communication, Jason, which is, uh, which will be interesting to discuss and hash out, hash out, right? So today we're going to talk about Jürgen Habermas. He is, now who is Jürgen Habermas? Um, he is a very important German academic and kind of public intellectual who came to age in the post-World War II period. He was actually, as a very young teenager, he was... Uh, conscripted uh, to, to serve in, as the last line of defense in some city in Germany for the Nazis when the Soviets were ruling in so really interesting life uh, but not, you know after the war uh, has always been a big critic of sort of the Nazi period but also a, a sort of moral figure discussing what you know what Germany should do institutionally as a government and so forth to sort of overcome that period, or to deal with that period. Uh, so he's, he's a really interesting philosopher, sociologist, social theorist, very influential, very, I mean, probably one of the most cited academics in the world. He is almost known out, you know, by name outside much of the academy as well. Uh, he recently turned 90. And his to give you a kind of an overview of his work, uh, His early work focuses on sociology and political theory, and his primary interest is in understanding at this point in his early work, at least out to like maybe 81 or 82, 1981 or 82, is to understand the development of the public sphere in Europe and its development in relation with the whole process that he refers to as modernization. And uh, his work is deeply engaged at this time with that of sociologists like Max Weber, uh, Emil Durkheim, or Niklas Luhmann, these are all kind of canonical now, so names in sociology, and so forth. Um, and he has, in the 70s, he has these famous debates with Niklas Luhmann, who's a systems theorist, and who Habermas borrows things from, but also disagrees about others. And in trying to, you know, theorize this process of quote-unquote modernization, whatever that means in Europe, and trying to understand the development of modern society, and how it developed in relation to the bureaucratic state and to capitalism habermas leans very heavily as well on certain strands of of the philosophical tradition particularly phenomenology from which he takes this concept that he called the life world and so we're going to i'm going to try to elucidate this concept a little because it's going to relate to our notion habermas's notion of communication and his idea of what strategic communication is um, so it's important to, to have this sort of little background to understand how he, why it is that he becomes interested in questions of language and communication. Now, for Habermas, the notion of the life world, which is a really key concept for him, refers to this kind of store of knowledge that we make use of in everyday communication without really ever making it kind of a theme of our communication, without bringing it to the foreground as something that we, like, say... You know, oh, what what does this concept mean? We just kind of have this knowledge that we that forms the horizon of our understanding of reality. You know, these words and these meanings, these ideas that we kind of inherit, right? Um, for Habermas, this is a key concept for understanding how there could be any kind of social stability at all in social formations. What is that we're not always, you know, for example, in the U.S. right now, there's we might be arguing all the time, but people aren't on, on out in the streets, you know, just killing each other left and right in some Hobbesian nightmare right um even if it appears like we're sometimes close to that but if language you know for Habermas if language is the filter through which we experience reality and if language is constantly being tested through pragmatic use you know through the sort of people's use of language then there is a potential for every conversation as we saw with Socrates to kind of be endless right it could be the Socratic uh you could be the Socratic Socratic thinker and always be questioning, well, what do you mean by justice? And what do you mean by beauty? And what do you mean by, and so on and so on, and kind of lead, lead down an endless, potentially endless path. And so for him, the life world, you know, this store of knowledge that we're all inherit, you know, that's kind of, we are born into language, right? We're born into a specific uh, community, culture, society that already has these meanings. The life world that we're born into that forges us as individuals, uh, this forms a kind of uh, background, a damper that provides, uh, or you know, provides us with these shared ideas, and also dampens the potential for things to be questioned forever at, at infinitum, right? And we take this knowledge for granted. Really, we kind of make use of it in everyday life without kind of reflecting on it. Uh, he takes this idea from from Husserl, by the way, the the phenomenologist philosopher. And all this stuff is really interesting, particularly Habermas's discussion of the way that in modernity, certain subsystems, he calls them, such as the economy and the administrative state, kind of are separated or disconnected from the life world. And rather than functioning uh, or operating through language, they revert to the specialized, he calls them specialized code, that, you know, that are sort of transmitted through their, their own unique media. And what he means by this, for example, is the economy, for instance, with money, you know, the economy is this, works under its, what you would call these functional imperatives and money is its media, the way it transmits information. It's this very specific code tailored to the econ- to the capitalist economy and it's not the same as our the code that we use in everyday language. It's very functionally specific, right? It gives you information about prices, a supply and demand and uh, other kind of, you know, information about where to where to, adequate, where to, where to send resources, where to... Uh, and so forth. But what I want to focus on today, you know, is really Habermas's notion of language, the way he looks at it as a kind of a medium, as something that isn't static, uh, that, that develops through practice, that we develop pragmatically, that, that, and that, through which we develop as individuals in our pragmatic use of it. And Habermas takes these insights uh, of, a, you know, of a philosophy of language from thinkers as the first as the 19th century German naturalist, and philosopher um, Humboldt, Alexander hum, Alexander von Humboldt, and the Austrian philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, um, major name in 20th century philosophy. Wittgenstein probably one of the most influential, maybe with Heidegger and a couple of others philosophers. Uh, a whole sort of strand of analytical philosophy and and uh, language philosophy flows from Wittgenstein. And uh, Habermas develops a theory of language which emphasizes its pragmatic use, right? He's not interested just in the fact that language mirrors reality, supposedly, but in the fact that it's this media that we use to communicate about the world and through which we sort of form our identities and our collective understandings. So what does he mean by a pragmatic theory of language? What he means is that not only is language the media the medium through which we experience reality, like our our reality, we're born into, you know, society, we're sort of trained in language as children. And uh, we see reality through these words that kind of like, you know, is there, is there a sort of screen for the world. Um, language also develops through pragmatic everyday use. And even when we use language, we're always sort of opening up uh, every proposition, claim, any kind of, you know, any, any kind of speech act is according to Habermas, therefore linked to what he would call validity claims, and this is another kind of really key notion to Habermas. Um, um, we're almost di- done piling on, like ID one idea on top of another. Habermas is known for his kind of very, th- very thick theoretical architectonics. But well, so, what are validity claims? You know, what does it mean to that a speech act opens up to validity claims? For Habermas. Every instance of language use refers to three primordial levels. Um, however, uh, language points to reality, you know, it's sort of to a state of affairs um, that people assume is the same for, you know, partners in conversation. To a shared social reality as well, however, must would say. So, like, you know, me and you would be talking, Jason, and we would know that we both speak English and we... You know we have a certain cultural understandings, um, pre-understandings that we're born into, and that we kind of share as maybe you you'd call twenty-first century Americans or whatever. And uh, and then an interior dimension, right? This is the third dimension. So to to a state of affairs, kind of reality, um, to social reality, to a kind of shared reality that's uh, that's a sort of like specific social reality, and to our own like interior you could say like our or our own interior reality or or personality which to which we have privileged access um and therefore for habermas every use of language is open to being challenged along any of these three axes or dimensions and so state of affairs normative rightness or sincerity or truthness right these three dimensions anybody could question what your you know your propositions your claims along any of these axes. Um, does that make sense, Jason?
0: Yeah, uh, that was great, by the way. Very good, strong overview, so I applaud you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm learning along with everyone else here. Yeah. My, my one question is, it's gotta be hard to, when we are speaking, we don't always know that what we are saying is valid, even if we might believe it to be valid. So how do we deal with that situation?
1: You know, well, that's why that's where there are different, uh, you could say, modes of language use, right? And if you are making, you know, if you're a scientist, for example, um, and you are and you are basically making some dimension of the life world thematic, right? You're making something that we take for granted a theme and trying to sort of divulge, in in some ways. In some ways, get deep into that question and explore it the way a scientist would. Then you are, uh, you, you know, you're using you're using language in a very specific way. So you might be using questions, thesis statements, uh, hypotheses that are that are tailored in a specific uh, context, whether it's a scientific context, towards searching out information. And so a proposition would be something like a hypothesis that is meant to be tested, right? It's not stated as some kind of eternal truth or some kind of expected truth. Um, So you could say that those there are very specific, there are very unique uses of language of language that are tailored towards searching out for new information, thematizing dimensions of the life world, making making, uh, things that we might take for granted or things that are beyond our everyday knowledge, uh, objects of analysis and
0: and of focus.
1: Does that make sense?
0: I think so. So uh, I'm looking forward to getting into some examples. Yeah. Some hopefully still fun, fun examples that will uh, crystallize this a little bit more. Right.
1: That always helps. Uh, and let, maybe this will help. You know, maybe this is. It's important to understand that for for Habermas, the the telos of language. This is this is why he wants to look at it as this kind of thing that it's almost a, almost separated from us, right? It's not. It's not uh, language is this material thing, right? It's these it's these words that we that come out of our mouth that are really acoustic signals that become public and sort of transcend us to a certain extent, right? You didn't, I didn't make up the word uh, 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 circumlocution, right? This word was passed on to me, and it's part of the English uh, lexicon, and it means a certain thing, and it's used a certain way, and it can be used in certain ways. Um, also didn't come up with the rules for chess, right? These are things that are passed on. Language is something like that. It's a set of rules, and these see texts from Wittgenstein. It's a set of rules that are passed on that we learn, that we're trained in when we're very young, through play, through observation, um, and we learn to just use them, to use these words, and whether it's in writing or whether it's in communication. So for, for Haramas this thing that's separated from us to an extent, that's ob- objective to an extent, it's an object in the world, language, it has a telos, it has a direction, whether we like it or not, according to him. And this direction is reaching understanding. Language, in a way you could almost say, forces us to be oriented towards reaching understanding. Of course, you know, people might say, well, people are really fickle and they are always, you know, they could be selfish and they could be blind and they could be proud. But Howard says that's all good and well, but language is still... It's your, when you make a proposition, when you use it, make a speech act, whether you like it or not, you are, for the conditions for your speech act to be meaningful at all, are for them to be able to not only, um, for the speaker to be able to, to take up that speech act and say, okay, I understand the conditions uh, of your, that would make your speech act meaningful. I would understand uh, what you mean by it and the way you're using that speech act. Right so these three things have to be fulfilled for a speech act to be at all meaningful. So but you know but he means what he means is that he doesn't mean that humans are trying to reach understanding all the time. You know it's important to emphasize that for Habermas he's not making any claims about human nature. He's not making any claims about human's propensity for good evil or reason. In some ways that's what makes it interesting. I think he's not he's been he's been characterized as the philosopher of that continues to like carry on the Enlightenment project of reason. But if you look at Hamerma's, he's sort of a very skeptical philosopher, where his last, the last residue of reason in the world resides pretty much in language, uh, and it's only because language is structurally points us in these directions towards, uh, you know, in these directions of validity claims that it has any kind of propensity to push us towards, towards having to sort of like use reasons to back up our claims. Um, but because language is this medium through which we perceive the world and communicate, it opens up to us this, you know, mutual understanding, whether we want it or not. Or you could say it's not whether we want it or not. We don't want it. We could just refuse it. But it, in refusing it, there are certain myth, there are certain consequences um, because our language always runs up against testing, testing that it takes because its language develops pragmatically through use. It always runs up against testing um, that you know people can basically check because we're using public signals and signs, uh, acoustic signals, people can always check the, the statements of our, you know, the accuracy of our statements, whether they're right in terms of the what they say about the world, whether they're right in terms of what they say about what's allowed in you know, order to be people to do it, you know, whether what's allowed in terms of actions or, or ideas um, and whether, you know, in terms of sincerity. So if I tell you, Jason, that, you know, I oh, Gosh, I really love spaghetti. But every time you I go to your house, you serve me spaghetti, and I'm like, I can't. I don't eat anything. You're probably going to be like, Well, there's something. Juan's uh, is either schizophrenic or there's something wrong because he's lying about spaghetti. What's going on, right? So I mean, I thought I thought, and that was interesting. At the moment, I'd like to ask you a question because I remember, you know, I think part of your claim is that people are mostly selfish. I think this is something a philosopher by Harvard, like Habermas, who sees things like human the idea of of the human like the human itself the human itself and language as deeply historical things he would think he would make the proposition as a philosopher that saying that there's any such thing as human nature that's sort of like eternally codified as an idealist is a philosophical idealization that would be sit very well with plato but not so well with, in a in a modern philosophical perspective
0: so my intuition here is that the goal of our action, you know, when, when we decide to do something, there's usually an intention behind it. And often, you know, whether or not it's realistic that we can achieve that goal, um, it's not always, you know, that goal is not always going to be to increase understanding. There are other things you want. Now, uh, what your your um, description of Habermas is that in, in the norms of language, doesn't matter uh, what we do, there's always going to be an impetus towards increased understanding or recognition that someone is is being deceptive because that will be revealed over time if you are attuned to the aberrance between what someone is saying and reality. Is that correct?
1: To an extent. So I think I'd, maybe I'll add something else that I think is really key for Habermas, right? Because our language, our speech, or what he calls our speech acts, like using language, right? Because they are we're using these publicly verifiable objective sort of things that have been passed on to us. Um, And because we use them in these ways um, in which we inevitably point to states of affairs, normative rightness, and truthfulness, so subjective, like some subjective sincerity, that anytime a claim is raised against one of those dimensions, if if I say to you, Jason, uh, you know what? I think that... uh, Warren is going to get the nomination because all the other candidates are They are compromised by corporate money. You could say hey, well, you know what like there's a couple of other ones that are actually not taking corporate money and you could say here's a proof it's a Article blah blah blah, right? So if I make a claim a proposition inevitably because it's text because language doesn't just mean things like, words don't just have, like, this sort of eternal meaning, but also our, our sentences don't reflect... Uh, our sentences aren't structured in a way in which they just sort of, like, are judged based on their truthfulness, whether they um, reflect one of these dimensions. You could you could test me out in this specific dimension. You could say, well, you know, want to have some proof here that actually what you're saying is wrong. Okay, well, I'm wrong, but I still think that Warren is going to win because yeah screw all the other ones and you could say well you know what Juan that's great but we're here at this in this academic battle and that's just not the way we're that's not how we make arguments here and that's just not um gonna be allowed or accepted as a sort of argument you know this is the social dimension right what counts as what counts as rightfully okay or or if i say you know i don't care whether people get run over by cars when they're biking I don't care. Well, Juan, there's this thing called, you know, that we value called uh, sort of life and individual, right? So there's all these, these are just sort of silly examples, right? But uh, but for Habermas, every time one of these claims is brought up, the key thing is that we are forced to have an argument. And in argumentation, through argumentation, uh, reasons have to be mustered and used. And because we're pragmatically testing language all the time, because we are thematizing our actions to and turning them into language, and for example, saying, oh, you know, this this experiment that you ran and you said was going to do so-and-so, it didn't quite do so-and-so, let's go back to the drawing board, where do we go wrong? Because you're pragmatically testing uh, language, and that's linked also to our actions, and we're thematizing those, these, through argumentation and through experience, these processes of learning are set into motion for Habermas, this is really key. And learning is something that we can't forget, <laughs> right? So if one day, you know, through our experience, something happens and we stop believing in whatever we will, be- you know, whatever we believed before, for Habermas, he says these are not things that can be easily undone. Of course, they could over time. People could forget things that they've learned or that their forefathers learned or whatever, right? Previous generations passed on knowledge and so forth, and it could be erased. Whether it's because it's been stored, or because people have Change their habits of uh, passing on information and so forth, but we can't forget what we've learned. And so for him, this is really c- crucial and key. Um, it's not that humans aren't always trying to orient themselves towards understanding; it's that language, structurally, not only opens itself to the opens itself up to these validity claims, but people are free to always argue and to push uh, to. Basically, ask for reasons for a validity claim, and these these reasons can't be sort of like provided in a way that that's suitable, that's convincing, that's based on a sort of like some kind of like proof, right? Or some kind of consistency over time in terms of if we're saying a claim about us. Oh, Jason, I really you know I love going. I'm a I'm a really religious person. Then you, I never go to church, and over time you say, well, he's just he's just full of it. I never read the Bible. I never read the Quran. I never talk about or Seem to, or, and I act, you know, mis- I act sort of like, like a. I just treat people badly, or say, well, well, whatever religious he is, he's not, uh, he's not very sincere about it. So, so yeah. it's not that people are oriented any wish way or another. It's that our language structures um, and opens itself up to these, to these testing, to this pragmatic testing, to this validity claims, and through learning, we're able, in a sense, to become more reflexive this is the enlightenment dimension of Harvard Musk, which is maybe more uh, controversial nowadays especially that societies as a whole can become a little more more reflexive, create better processes for communication to enhance the communicative dimension of of communication and so forth.
0: Yeah, well, so it, it's really hard to have arguments sometimes. So, you know, right. as you're talking, the kind of person you're talking about is this, you know, middle-class intellectual in a coffee shop that Habermas <laughs> talks about so often right and I don't know if everyone fits that mold and it would be great if more people were attuned to the way that we communicate so there could be you know we can call out misleading claims when they're uttered uh, but but I don't know, I don't know if everyone uh, wants to go through the process of having that argument I don't know if anyone if everyone is is completely attuned to that especially because you know today in this climate uh, it can be very emotionally draining to kind of get involved in these higher kind of intellectual or sometimes political or cultural dialectics. Yeah,
1: and this is why... And that, that's that's yeah. kind of
0: an aside, but just an interesting point that maybe, you know, it'd be worth talking about briefly yeah, for I another think, minute. Yeah, I
1: definitely think that, you know, some of the critiques against Habermas, which are right on point, are the fact that uh, Habermas, actually his first book, is is titled "The Structural Transformation of the Public Sphere," um, and the, the subtitle is "An Inquiry into the Category of Bourgeois Society." And this book, which is published, I think, in the in the '60s, as is as his like basically second dissertation in Germany at the time. I think still today they have to write basically two dissertations or a dissertation and a something that they call a uh, habilitation, which is kind of like their it's what they have the right to be able to become professors. This one is about the development of the public sphere in Europe, and how, uh, with the development of a kind of the modern state and of the middle class, there's this kind of creation of this sphere of newspaper, uh, the sphere of newspapers and of salon and coffee discussions, in which in which uh, this these people are not. Not church, not state, and not necessarily private, right? They're in a they're in a public world where they are talking about things that are interest them, but they are not uh, they are not uh, talking for any one of these specific powers and having discussions which are opening which are open to like reasons that are, that are uniquely tailored towards reason and so forth, uh, where people are you know writing op-eds and all this and that. And sort of his, his uh, he has this kind of, um, he has this kind of, his, his take on it is that this sphere of this classic, what he calls classic bourgeois public sphere sort of dies out with, uh, with sort of the rise of the market and of uh, publicity and things like that. And uh, what a lot of, and he never goes back, really he kind of never goes back to thinking about media technological changes and the way that they organize change shift uh, reconfigure communication the public sphere and so forth so you could say that uh, one of the uh, one of the weaknesses of the work is this lack of engagement with a lot of the newer media theory a lot of the newer things that question this this um, a lot of the things that question his, his takes on the public sphere so that's a really I think a Valid thing to bring Yeah, up. so uh,
0: a lot of those coffee goers who want to have these intellectual conversations and they create journals and because they have the resources to do this, it's kind of like we're doing a podcast right now. Mm-hmm. I think one of the points is that media starts taking a turn, a more profit-oriented or approach where advertising is kind of at the core yeah. of of driving these dialectics, and, and over time, these coffee goer journals get subverted by advertising interests and then a lot of the media we get now uh, aren't as genuine as what we used to get from from kind of that branch of, of communication. And I, I wonder, so are these advertisers who uh, use AI today to get us to buy things through Facebook and Amazon, are they strategic actors in a, in a Habermasian sense? And what makes them a strategic actor?
1: You know, I think the answer would be yes, because they are, their interest is basically selling things,
0: right? And
1: their interest is not to convince you that something is right, that something, that something in the, that, that, that they're pointing to a state of affairs that exists, that they are making some claim about normative rightness, or they're, they're, that they're sort of like making a claim that uh, could be judged on the, on the basis of, of subjective experience, because companies are not really, don't. Have, even if they've been called people by the Supreme Court, um, the idea of like a company having a sort of like interior experience that only it has access to is kind of like an abstraction, right? And so, and so, you know, you could say that an ad itself is strategically tailored and organized, and or and designed to have an effect, and that effect is very, isn't it What uh, what Harvard must call the strategic effect? The effect is not to convince you along any of these lines, or to open up lines of communication along any of these lines, it's to, or to, or to reach agreement, it's to get you to buy something. In fact, this is the, yeah. this is uh, you know, kind of, in some ways, this is, <laughs> this relates to an argument that sort of one of the pre to, cursors to, uh, to Habermas makes Adorno, when he talks about the work of art, when it gets sort of sucked up by industrial production, becoming nothing more than this sort of like thing that's trying to create consumers, consumers of, of goods and services, right? Uh, this is a sort of critique of of what happens to art with the rise of capitalism. Uh, so I bet, but he doesn't talk about, uh, you know, again, Habermas does not talk about new media, what I would call like digital media, uh, electronic media, data mining, um, Algorithms that are now used to sort of categorize populations of consumers in all these different ways and to, to target ads to these people and so forth. So, the, the, you know, the things have changed so much since he t- touched on that subject and from the time that he was t- that he was writing about. Um, that in some ways there's a big gap in his discussion of communication, right?
0: So if an, ad- if an advertiser told you you should buy this chair because it's gonna make your back feel better. And it turns out it's actually a perfectly true statement. And they're being honest, they're telling you that they wanna sell the chair. So is this, you know, there is a strategy there because they think, well, the chair speaks for itself. I'm gonna tell them it's gonna be very compelling and they're gonna buy the chair. So they have a strategy to sell more chairs, but they aren't saying anything dishonest uh, from my perspective. So is this a form of strategic action that Habermas would disapprove of,
1: you know. It's, and this is where I think it's really interesting. That's a really interesting example because you could also come up with a counterexample, right? Before I address the one you came up with, uh, for example, let me give you one. I will. I will. I'll watch. Be watching TV, and Exxon or somebody um, has this really beautiful um commercial in which we see all these like guys wearing uh hard hats and like very working and super clean looking plants and putting together like i don't know green energy stuff and they're like oh we're doing great to transition to green energy and Exxon's making it happen and boom end of ad right and then at the end in a little like line in little in, in small print at the bottom there's like paid for by petroleum association of america blah 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 and you're like oh right well this is clear political you know from my perspective it's clear political whitewashing right exxon is one of the most polluting companies in the world whose whose product <laughs> is basically something that science some scientists are saying hey if you keep producing this kind of stuff and at the level you're doing it you're putting us in a very bad situation as a speech as a species so if we were accept all of those, if we accept those claims, the the uh, the commercial itself is, you know, little more than propaganda, right? And that propaganda uh, has a specific uh, political agenda behind it, it is not uh, honest by any means. It's not trying to sell even a simple product, you could even say it's just trying to sort of like, create the, the, the perception that there is no need to sort of like think critically about these companies because they're actually just they're honest players just like everybody else now going back to to your example
0: let, let me just say though so th- this is this is you know conspicuously manipulative and <laughs> you know exxon is is like a, a civilization unto itself so it can take the criticism but you know <laughs> right. smaller companies might not be able to get away with this bullshit Because you take a strategy like this and people start being like, you know, this company is lying to us and that can really hurt your bottom line in the long run. So it's, you know, not everyone is going to take this approach of, well, we're just going to lie to people and that's going to be a good strategy. Uh, Sometimes the better strategy is being completely honest. Isn't isn't that, a, isn't that a, a possibility? And is that the same thing that Habermas is talking about? Yeah, um, yeah, and it certainly is a possibility, right? If you have
1: a company that's producing a chair and they're saying, "Hey, this chair is good for your back," and people's experiences that it is, then it brings up a whole further set of questions, right? Though, right? Um, yeah. Are, who backs up these claims? Two doctors, five doctors, twenty doctors, the, doc- the Association of whatever of Doctors of America. Um, tests in Europe and in the United States and in other in Japan and somewhere else. Uh, along, you know, what are the chains of reference that back up this notion, or just people's experience because the chair is comfy? Um, you know, what are the what? How do you gauge that? And over time, of course, we have the market itself. As much as people like to talk about the free market, is always and has always been bounded by institutions, norms, laws, and so, you know, for example, if someone says, this pill is going to it's gonna be really good for your back, and people are taking the pill, and it turns out that it actually, you know, doesn't do anything, or makes things worse, or does something has secondary effects, there are laws, there are supposed to be processes that keep this from going into the market, or that... Through which people can sue the company and so forth, right? So there are all these repercussions for a company that steps out of bounds enough, right? But an ad in itself has one specific intention, whether its claims that it's making are true or not, to get you to buy their product. Um, on a second, you could, and this is where it's interesting. And, but but were, so, in, so
0: the intention is wrong. Is no, it's
1: ordered. not necessarily wrong because it, I mean. The mar- the company's working within the market framework, and if it's not lying about its product, and if it's offering something that seems to work for people, and it's following the law, I mean, there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong about it. However, the ad specifically is an interesting speech act, and I think we'd have to break it up between its communicative dimension and its strategic dimension. Right? I think that's where I'm trying to get at. On the on the one hand, its communicative dimension is uh, the claims that it's that it's making that open itself up to validity claims and to checking and to argumentation, and the strategic dimension of it which is because it's working with a market relationship and it's at the intention of the company to get you to buy their product the strategic dimension of the of the ad is to get you to buy it and if and if getting you to buy it is point to the to the medical benefits of the chair rather than just the comfort of the chair that's a that's one you know that's one element of the strategy behind it does
0: that this gets back to um you brought up that i said i think people are selfish Mm mm-hmm It's my intuition that oftentimes we are motivated by self-needs or self-wants. And that, you know, that just seems self-evident to me. But um, I made another claim that basically any speech act, for, for any speech act, we can conceive of a strategic motivation for committing that speech act in the first place. And it might not be that we had any conscious intention to create a certain outcome going into it. But in any given moment, there could have been this kind of self-goal or motivation that, you know, to say that this chair is uh, a cat, which is a stupid example. It's better than my um, example tonight. Or even just to say so that this chair is a chair. You might, outside of just creating understanding that, okay, mutual understanding that this is indeed a chair, there could be other things that you're trying to achieve there by, you know oh, by bringing this person's attention to this chair, he'll realize how horrible of a chair it is, thereby going to Ikea and getting a new chair. Maybe that's something else he wanted out of this, in addition to creating further understanding that it is indeed a chair. Uh, this- and I feel like that ha- that is just a, a fundamental thing that occurs all the time. And uh, it does seem like that is part of our human nature. I don't know how we can regulate that completely out of our systems.
1: Except, and again, this is not about human nature. This is about the way language works structurally. Except, and I think this is where it's important to really differentiate what the key for Habermas is in terms of the difference between communicative and strategic action. Because for him, the difference comes down specifically to this. Communicative action is one in which our propositions, claims, requests are not only understood by a listener, Like, somebody can actually make sense of them, right? Like, I'm using this code, and you know what I'm saying. You understand what I'm saying. But are also accepted as valid. These are two different things. Two different steps. And for this to happen, you know, listeners not only have to accept the conditions for the validity of a speech act, they have to accept also the validity claims reached in the speech act, and the possible reasons that that somebody making a speech act might use to vindicate one. So let me give you an example. You know, again, another stupid example. <laughs> that seems to be what we're, that seems to be the theme for today. If I tell you the sky is blue, what are, you would have to accept, first of all, the conditions for the validity of the Speech Act. That means you have to understand, for example, if we are standing in the same place and I tell you the sky is blue and it's night, first condition, by your experience, that's that at night you can't really tell what the color of the sky is and there's no color to the sky would be thrown out. But if it's noon, you would understand, and and, and it's not a cloudy sky, first condition uh, would be accepted, right? The conditions kind of work out. And that we both know what the word sky is, that we both are humans on Earth and have that experience and can match it up. And I would then have to verify uh, or believe what you say is true. I could look up and say, actually it's dusk and the sky is pink. So your validity claim is wrong. <laughs> Or, and this is testable in experience, right? And it's testable by somebody else. And I would have to also be ready to accept the reasons you might give me. Um, you can't see the sky right now. There are clouds covering it. But, there, but 10 minutes ago, there was a little there was a little uh, break in the clouds, and I could see that the sky was blue. And not only is that, but it's noon. Uh, I can tell you the sky is blue. And then you say, in my experience, yes, that's something that comes out, in your, and your reasons are acceptable. I accept your speech act. I understand sure, but, but what, I understand what you're saying.
0: Why why are you asking me or why are you telling me that the sky is blue in the first place? What was your motivation for telling this to me? Did I ask you? Maybe maybe I didn't ask you and I was surprised by the by the statement. So there's some motivation there. What what could those possible what what could those motivations be?
1: Well, and that's where the and that's where there's a second perhaps you could say the mention is and this is where the distinction is with the strategic action. In strategic action, according to, to Harvey Moss, I am trying to attempt to influence you in some way causally, right? I'm trying to get you to do something or react in a certain way. Um, and I'm not trying to do it. I'm not trying to convince you of anything. I'm not trying to get you to agree to anything. See those two differences? One is I'm trying to reach an agreement with you and through that agreement I would expect that I would convince you about something and to change your ways for instance. Let's say you're an alcoholic and I'm like, Jason, you know what? I'm going to, let's sit down and let's talk. I'm going to convince you that you should stop drinking. Or I could, if I were used to, to use strategic action, my use of language would not be oriented towards understanding. It would be oriented to somehow getting you to stop without you really Understanding or believing or being in agreement with me that alcohol is killing you or bad for you or that you're an alcoholic, I could say, hey, you know what? You should stop drinking for thirty days, and then we'll go get trashed for uh, St. Patrick's Day. Maybe that's going to get him to like stop being alcoholic for a month. Um, if you stop drinking for thirty days, I'll have fifty beers with you. Another stupid example, <laughs> but you see the difference. It's very specific, but it's one is. You understand me. We've reached an understanding about something. Another is I use language to affect you. But you don't know my true motivations. Or I haven't made my true motivations clear. Do you see what I mean? Your motivations could be any. Your motivations could be Your motivations could be anything. Your motivations could be bad, good. It doesn't matter. If you lose language communicatively, it has to be, according to the Habermas, oriented towards understanding. And this is a very specific distinction from using language in a way that affects that has a causal effect.
0: Okay, but but even when I think I know your motivations, because I think you're being honest and genuine, I don't actually know your motivations. Like, how could I? But those could be tested over time,
1: right? And this is what Harun Musa is saying. He's saying the your speech act points in all three directions towards the world, the social world, and towards your interiority to which you have personal. And over time, I can. I you might I you might be telling me you might be using language that that about the world that s- speaks to a state of affairs that I agree with you might be telling me about a social normative realm that I agree with about which you speak that I agree with your claims about it uh, you might say hey uh, I need you to stop doing this let me give you some reasons this is what's happening in the world this is what's allowed by law this is what I, that is it, allowed by social convention this is why what you're doing is just wrong or immoral or Unethical, um, and then I find out ten years later that you're doing it as well, right? And you're and and the, and or I find out that you were and you know you were trying to get me to do something uh, for reasons other than what you were stating at the time that were your reasons. The fact of the matter is your strategic action again comes up against these limits of understanding and understanding specifically in the, in the level of uh, and this is why it's interesting that you're bringing that one up, which I think is why i think you're bringing it up right and what harvard Musk would respond to that is ah you're picking the most hard one to prove and the most hard one to maintain um in the moment because i could argue i could really question you like do you really want to you know is that really your intention okay i i you know i agree with you about this versus that or i think i'm gonna i think you're right about this or that uh Um, or I think we should do this together and cooperate on this project or whatever it is. However, over time, either because it's revealed by consistency of your actions or by something that contradicts your sort of statements, those motivations come out and it comes out that you were acting strategically all all along, not tailored towards communication, not not tailored towards uh, agreement
0: over time strategy is always going to reveal itself because the message being communicated this kind of deception will reflect reality less and less and well what, what, the one thing that you kind of you may have conceded to me there is that it takes a long it can take a long time to realize someone is doing this for which sure and someone could benefit quite a bit before it's revealed oh that for this sure is not an honest Definitely. actor
1: i mean humans are again this is not about what humans do it's about you could almost call them natural language. This thing we developed through for evolu- for evolution that we use. This code inevitably opens us up to these three dimensions. And what Harrahmas is saying, one of the dimensions is very much about your subjective interiority. Um, you could you could you go through the world making claims about the world and saying things about our norms and Making statements about and showing a certain behavior to the public world, while in the, your while in your interior, being cynical about it, and uh, perhaps even in certain private instances acting against uh, this these these supposed sort of like ideas that you hold so dear, and as we've seen with many people over the especially politicians over the years, right, it can come out that they're hypocrites, they're liars, they are um they were all in it for something else other than what they stated they were they were opportunists right
0: we should talk about that more but you know before we get there you know so if i keep telling you that this chair is a cat (laughs) and if it wasn't clear to you the first time that i was being deceptive eventually you're going to realize that the chair isn't a cat okay but Sticking with chairs for some reason, but what if I tell you that the chair is a chair, and I say it with a friendly smile instead of a frown? And I'm a nice guy, so I do this without thinking. But it's also true that if I frown at you all the time, you're probably not going to want to work with me in the future. So, can we construe this this decision to smile as a kind of strategy? And is there Certainly. anything wrong with this from a hyperbolic? Oh, for
1: sure. I mean, I think, and I think this is where one need, one needs mm, me personally. I would. I would uh, argue for a need to explode Habermas' system and to to uh, rethink it along its lines. And one way to explode it is, say, for... And I think to an extent, Habermas is all, would already have made some of these claims, but something like a smile is a sign. It's a publicly... It's a, it's a sign which in different cultural contexts means different things, you know? Americans smile more than other people in different ways, in public, for instance. Um... You know, go to don't smile in germany go to germany go to spain or go to some other and you smile at some stranger in the street and they might just kind of like be like okay that person is not from here smile at someone in the united states and some people might be a little uncomfortable but a lot of people are going to smile back say hi it's a different cultural context right and it means a certain thing it means like goodwill it means i'm not aggressive it means hey i'm supposed to talk but you could use it strategically right and I could find out that your smile was two-faced
0: as we, as we... Well, what if I'm not being two-faced? What if I just, you know, I want to be like, hey, you're my friend. And that is still a kind of strategic action. I'm making that decision because I know it's it's a good thing. But this is where I think certain strategies are good for us relationally. And we do them without even thinking about it. But we do, we do them because there is a certain outcome that helps us collaborate, that helps us build stronger relationships, and it signals to each other that, hey, I'm on your side. And that's all within the confines of whatever culture you're operating in. But it is still, conscious or unconscious, a kind of strategy.
1: Mm, yes, perhaps. But every strategy runs up against its limits. And this is where your smile, again, can you maintain a smile in all situations, even when you no longer want to smile, right? Um, is it something you just... Well,
0: sometimes we have to do that, right? Of course, but you, it's, can, be you, be it st- you can be in a family situation. You could be doing it st- And there's a risk of of getting in trouble, maybe. But it's it's a small risk, I think. It, I mean, it depends at what level we're operating at. What, what is the situation? Uh, if it's just you're around someone who's annoying, and maybe you just want them to go away... So you say, yeah, yeah, that's great, and you give them a smile, right? And then it's over, and, and, and there really isn't a whole lot of damage done there, of course. But you're using it strategically,
1: not, not in, in so, how so, my sense of communicatively? Correct. So you're I, not using I, it reach in, a, in a dimension of like understanding. Um,
0: I accept that. What would I what I'm not sure if I accept if this is just always such an imperative that we have to be thinking about this?
1: Well, I mean, whether it's an imperative or not, I mean, I think it's 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 a claim that one would have to argue against by making counter arguments about. So if you wanted to argue against uh, Habermas, you probably would have to go into the realm of language philosophy and say, here are some things you're missing. You say that, you know, if you actually read Habermas, he talks about how, you know, language uses... It, in language use by by using a speech act, it kind of language is sort of like self-referential. And he talks about why. He talks about how language has this pronoun system, and the pronoun system already sort of implies this notion that we can um, put things in the second person and what that means. So there's whole, you know, and he's building on this whole tradition. You'd have to go in there and be like, well, you know what? There's something you're missing, and there's a thing you're not you're missing about uh, this is your idea of understanding of language communication and so forth. Because and because of this link that's wrong or where or, or you're making a claim that just doesn't stand up to scrutiny um, your whole idea that language is sort of strictly oriented towards understanding and towards validity claims um, that this is the way it works uh, is wrong. If however we accept that uh, that language is tailored and structurally works in the way that Habermas says it, I'm not saying it's not a, It's, not, it's a, you can't disagree with him, I'm saying however that uh, that it's it's hard to to I think maybe to an extent argue with this distinction he makes between communicative action and strategic action. One is or, oriented towards reaching understanding, and that means you you do two very clear and valid things. Not only do I understand what you're saying, but I accept what you're saying. Um, you've convinced me of it. I accept it, uh, and there is not uh, and and the language has been used towards understanding in an orientation towards understanding not towards uh, causal influence not towards getting you to do something and withholding some dimension of information
0: sure okay can, can we think through another kind of relational thought experiment sure or just yeah just kind of take it from there i think it's yeah i think it's kind okay. of
1: maybe put this into action right put it into some into some actual models that we can discuss examples yeah
0: well let's do some more stupid ones so <laughs> there's there's a family drama scenario so let's assume that Habermas's best friend, Pete, he's suddenly engaged to marry this girl, Jamie. So, bewildered by the suddenness of Pete's engagement, he attends a dinner party to get to know Jamie. (laughs) Well, to be terse, the dinner party does not go well. Jamie thinks that Habermas's theory of communicative action is complete bunk, (laughs) and he really hates her laugh. It's just a horrible screech, uh, nails on a chalkboard. So they don't like each other. She
1: thinks his philosophy's bs and she and he
0: thinks her laughs su- is horrible yeah okay uh, and of course he's upset that they're in disagreement about the theory of communicative action so pete is making a horrible mistake habermas thinks yeah and he tries to express his concern about jamie to pete but it's clear that pete is madly in love with this girl and his attempts to disillusion pete are likely to cause an irreparable conflict uh-huh. so what does he do ultimately habermas tells pete that he loves him and he supports him no matter what he says I have some concerns about Jamie, but if she makes you happy, well that's ultimately what I want for you, and I'll trust your judgment on this one. Mm-hmm. And this is not what Habramas wanted to say. He's not being authentic because if he's if he was, he'd be far more emotional and punitive. He's also being very calculated with his words to avoid escalating conflict. So if our goal was to break up the relationship, then Habermas and maybe that was the right thing to do because Jamie's just this horrible person, then Habermas's approach here really isn't effective. But if that is not the goal, and maybe talking about goals at all here is is um, part of the problem. But Habermas, uh, you know, wants to maintain his relationship with Pete, even if that means playing nice with Jamie. So what is what is the Habermasian alternative to strategic action here, or should we just have no relationships at this point?
1: Well, I mean, here is where you have to, you have to separate these these two different dimensions. One of them is morality and what's the right thing to do, and another is communicated action. Right? And if you're saying, you know, Habermas has decided and made the decision that morally he's okay with um, voicing a slight uh, apprehension, but that he's going to withhold his true, the, the, the truth breath of his actual negative feelings about uh, Jamie to Pete, but that he'd rather. Sort of like maintain his friendship with Pete because it's very important to him. Uh, that is a very those moral calculations, uh, as they inf- inf- infect, or you could say, deflect the language use, um, are different than the communicative dimension. Of, you know, the the they they sort of tailor the way that language is going to be used, um, but they don't. But it, it doesn't mean that you get you get to escape the schema and the difference between strategic communicative action. So, for example, in that specific instance, right? The goal is what's the goal? The goal is to to maintain your friendship with Pete. All
0: right. I I would think right? so. Right. Yeah. So
1: that's the goal. That's the strategy. And the strategy is to sort of withhold your true feelings about Jamie. Um, you are uh by habermas definition I guess you would have to say that you are acting strategically your strategic action is is basically to to ensure that the friendship persist, persists because something like him your friend having the third partner that you disapprove of is something you can live with um, you will never disclose your true feelings about Jamie and you have acted so that the so that the effect of uh, people leaving that you are okay with it and therefore having no qualms about your continuing friendship Is something that is set aside and sort of put in a box, right? Um, but you have not acted towards or you know in a communicative sense in terms of reaching understanding Because you haven't sat down and said look, you know Let me tell you what I really think about Jamie because I'm your friend and because I really care about you And I think you're making a mistake. Let me give you some reasons um, first of all Jamie's laugh really sucks you know, <laughs> like, let's listen to a tape of it. it. Just tell me it doesn't, tell me it's not the worst laugh you ever heard. That it doesn't make you want to, you know, go crazy, jump out the window. Doesn't sound like somebody, you know, scratching the chalkboard with their nails. Now, however, um, and think about the conventions of marriage. You will have to put up with this person for 50 years. Um, it's better for you now to pull out of this before you have to, Wake up every morning to this horrifying laugh, and perhaps end up being an unhappy person. Um, it's better to end it now and be honest with the person, and so forth. This is what's okay in our in our social situation. And let me and I'm telling you truthfully how I feel because I really care about our friendship and I care about your future and your happiness. Um, I could I could be you know I could have told I could have withheld these feelings from you, and perhaps you're gonna be mad at me. But this is what true friends do under my concept of true friendship. Which is, again, is a normative concept. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. So let, 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 let me plant a flag here really quick, though. So Pete might actually be a reasonable guy. <laughs> and he's he's hearing what you're saying. And the the effect might be that you have just saved your relationship. So this Habermasian communicative action approach was a successful strategy after all. And that is what I mean by a the superposition of selfishness on other kinds of non-selfish no but this motivation. is but
1: this is where again the distinction has to be very carefully uh, I see what you're saying and I see what you think of this in terms of strategy but it's not because this is where the distinction of however must it really is makes a difference between what would be a strategy in this context and what would not be a strategy what would be a strategy would somehow be to get you to stop let's say the goal is to get you to stop marrying this person one way to do it would be towards in a communicative way you convince this person, you get them to agree with you that there are, that there are these things, these reasons why the person shouldn't marry the, the other person the strategic way of going about it would be to get the goal without the agreement so you're going to make up a lie about Jamie or you're going to start talking um you're going to say something or do something that sort of gets Pete to um, think that, he's, that he should marry her. But you're not really disclosing the reasons why you think. You're not convincing him that he shouldn't for the, for the reasons that you actually think so. You see what the difference? There's a very, it's a very subtle distinction, but it's a very important distinction. One is, you know, I don't want my friend Pete to get married to Jamie. So I'm going to tell him that Jamie does not wash brush her teeth and after she gets married because of her last husband told me that. Yeah. That she stopped brushing her teeth after after marriage. um, And Pete's going to look horrified and be like, what? Can't believe that she would do that. And um, I can't marry somebody like that. I can't imagine what that would be like. Or I'm going to tell Pete, hey, I really think that Jamie is a really, you know, my experience for her is that she's just a cold-hearted person Um, and I'm telling you from the bottom of my heart, and here are the experiences, here are the moments that she's done this. She is She's not someone that's going to make you happy. Uh, Let me convince you of that. There's a very difference between someone, first of all, understanding what you're saying and agreeing with it, and therefore changing their, their mode of activity or action because of it, and someone acting because you're doing something in a way that, again, when you acted in a, in a way that was tailored towards strategic strategy you
0: see what i mean strategically yeah so so this is where um i think my conception and that's where your words are important because is, one there's a difference
1: between an intention your intention is to do something and that that necessarily uh, uh goes about strategically right
0: yeah so what i was saying is my conception of strategic communication i think is much broader than habermas's definition of strategic action yeah yeah you no know, i talk about communicating with intent any communication with intent <laughs> genuine or, or not genuine to with an intent to influence attitudes behaviors uh, beliefs um and, you know let's talk go back to change management that we've talked about um the vast majority of what i do is focused on improving clear lines of communication, having more communication across chains of command, um, increasing understanding, awareness, and engagement around different types of projects and changes. Um, None of this seems to run up against um, a Habermasian uh, strategic action. It's not the same thing as an Exxon running a completely manipulative uh, advertisement to get people to buy into their, um, their bunk whitewashed project so um i mean tell, tell me if i'm right so if the field of change management was a kind of strategic action in a habermasian sense then it would be a self-defeating industry because you know eventually everything would reveal itself as strategic action and no one would would like us anymore no one would hire us yeah we wouldn't be effective but isn't so isn't is, there is, is there a different
1: isn't there a distinction between strategies of communication and strategies of getting people to communicate? Let's say, and this is another example, right? Let's say the, the classic Freudian, the classic psychoanalyst uh, patient situation, a well-trained psychoanalyst would have strategies for getting a person to divulge information, to reflect on their, their experiences. To uh, see, you know, begin seeing their own personal life experience in different ways. Strategies for communication, which are tailored towards, like what you were saying, in a sort of like tailored towards opening up communication, uh, these are different types of acts, I think, from a Hephaveramazian perspective, than strategic uh, action in the sense of action tailored and oriented. And with an interest in getting you to uh, to act a certain way, not you know causally, right? So strategies strategies can be can be used to to sort of enhance perhaps communication, uh, but at the end of the day, that communication has to be enhanced, right? And the strategy has to stop somewhere.
0: We know that when we do this. That we dramatically increase change adoption, buy into to different transformation projects, and we know this because there's really strong data about this. So there is always that underlying uh, motivation, whether you're working with commercial clients and then there's a profit motive there, or if you're working with government and then there's a policy motive there.
1: Well, and that's that's. I mean, I think those are those are meta questions for your field, right? For instance, if you go into a company and they say. You know, our real goal is to raise our profits 5%. But to do that, we need to implement this program and we need to make, we need to open up the lines of communication or whatever it is that we need, that they need you to do to make sure that people buy into the program itself. You as a stage management, I imagine, are in the situation where you could go in different routes, right? You could go a route that would be like, hey, this is going to be really good for the bottom line for the company and potentially for you or how do we get buy-in from these people given the goal of my client right and then and then you are you are very much you are very much able to go in one end or one another one line or another of what, however much we could of action or strategic action and the fact of the matter is given the fact that it's a firm and they have a specific goal that they may want or not to divulge the to their to their employees or to whoever it is that they're trying to get their whoever's the behavior they're trying to influence through your services um, if your services are tailored towards uh, specifically towards getting those effects but not specifically to getting a kind of uh, through a, again to getting people to act causally or to getting a certain set of causal effects uh, or causally ca- or a causally sort of um, developed effects uh, Or to get people to actually buy into something and agree into it, and that in some way is, uh, in some way aligns and is understood that it sort of like the organization's interests line up with your individual interests. That is something, and that this actually is truthful. Again, those are the two different dimensions, right? Or they seem to me like two different dimensions.
0: I agree. I think they are different, but I I think still effective. Because there is a result that we've tracked, that we've recorded. Um, And so I think it's possible that what I'm talking about isn't always what Habermas is talking about.
1: Well, I mean, two two different things. Effectivity and understanding are very different things, uh, I would say. And so like in some ways, I mean, I'm not sure if that's a distinction that you could make to say um, strat- the strat- the way I think about strategy is different from what Habermas says about strategy. Strategy for Habermas, I think it is about effects and uh, it's not about, you know, effectivity. It, for him, it's not about effectivity whether you're communicating toward, oriented towards communicative action or whether you're uh, oriented towards, uh, um, there's two different, dis- the distinction that are not about effectivity or not lack of effectivity. They're about the specific type of communication And the way it relates to validity claims
0: yeah i mean so you could tell a workforce that um we need to be more effective and efficient at achieving this policy motive if let's say it's a a government agency so um you tell them like that is why we're implementing all these changes and here's what they're going to do here's how they're going to impact you yeah all you've done is created more understanding yeah but there's research that shows the simple act of creating that understanding helps people adopt those changes more. And then you have more effectiveness and more efficiency faster. Um, so there, there's,
1: so what you're saying is that Habermas should have been a change consultant.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's interesting because maybe there's something to say about, you know, uh, sincerity and being genuine and, you know, being honest. As kind of kind of the go-to approach, which you know, when I think back to the kind of work I've done, it's usually, you know, if we increase transparency for upfront about things, usually things work out better for the organization and for the stakeholders, for everyone. Hmm. Well, Let, so did, before? Yeah. Go ahead. Go go ahead. No, no, please, please, Jason, I, please. I, <laughs> yeah, you're uh, you're acting strategically, Juan. <laughs> <laughs> Let's think back to just really quick getting to yes and never split the difference neither of these recommendations neither of them involve outwardly lying to your negotiating partners they they can end up in in that position but it's not that's not what is being recommended i think you know things like focusing on shared interests separating people from the problem appealing to objective criteria which seems like a very habermasian thing to do Um, all these things can play an important role in creating more understanding and opportunities for mutually beneficial agreement all without any kind of explicit deception. Now, Voss, when we think about Never Split the Difference, he recommends things like using silence, starting with no changing the tone of your voice. Uh, (laughs) These seem to have a more nefarious manipulative bent, but all this depends on the context in which they're used. Things like active listening and labeling feelings can also function as powerful mechanisms of increasing understanding without requiring any form of deception. So something as simple as remembering to tell your partner you love her every day, uh, even though you might not feel the need to say those words every day. The truth is that you do love her, but you remember to say, I love you, because you want your partner to feel appreciated and loved yeah. and remember. Yeah, um, so, I mean, this is still strategic, but not dishonest. And I know I think you're going to respond with this <laughs> distinction, but I'm starting to understand. <laughs> well, but but I, well, I almost I, I almost really, feel it's, not, really it's good, not completely relevant. This is
1: a relevant. really good example, right? And. Uh, this you know shout out to my wife Laura who I love uh, there's there's one there's one there's two different I would again I would think it and uh I'm sort of like playing the devil's advocate and siding with Habermas even though um I'm working on a paper that I hope gets published in which I sort of like go deeply into uh what I would call a post-Habermasian perspective and uh how I could think of Harvard Musk with media theory and, uh, and all these different things. But, um, and, and make, and sort of like, there's some things that I would criticize uh, Harvard Musk heavily for. That being said, uh, I think there, these words are really interesting, right? Because on the one hand, what you call strategies, you could also call methods, right? And so, what's a method for the right form of communication with a partner? A strategy, which, you know, a strategy, you know, I think these, whether, if, for example, learning to listen, right, and uh, in our society, I and I, you know, I'm as guilty as anyone. Men are better at better talking than listening sometimes, and uh, learning to listen to your partner and to understand and hear them and sort of like uh, make sure that you acknowledge that uh, in all these different things that we call strategies for person, for a good communication in a, in a relationship right can also be called methods for enhancing communicative action right for thickening communicative action for opening lines of communication for really letting communication change forth, for letting the subtleties and the and the sort of the sort of elements of communication which can be bottled up or hidden or suppressed or pushed come to the foreground and therefore enhancing the dimension of actual understanding and agreement. So if I understand Laura's motivations better and she understands my motivations better because we both would use good, you could call them strategies, but I would prefer maybe the word methods for communicating and expressing our feelings and emotions and also listening and really then we will probably have a more honest and open relationship. This got really wishy-washy really fast.
0: <laughs> but, hey, I completely agree with you. And I am totally fine changing the vernacular to methodology.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not trying to. And I think it's it's, it's okay to call it it's strategic action, right? Strategic strategies. Because these are these are strategies too. But yeah. these, it's a, we, when, we, you, when we go, I think this is interesting, really interesting. We've hit a moment where I think it's really interesting to point out that Specialized discourses like the one you trade in, specialized discourses like the one I trade in have different terminologies. And they might necessarily not be at odds. What you call strategy, I would call a method, but you know, from a philosophical perspective, I would say, hey, you know, what you call strategy is not and I'll tell you why not, and you would say, Well, we call it strategies because they are used we use them strategically and not strategically. And we've learned, you know what I mean? Yeah.
0: So, so we we are running up against the language problem. <laughs> yep.
1: <laughs> yep. And and and, and <laughs> we're running up against the problem that I again, a lot of people might say, oh, this is a great in into a critique of Harumas. but how Wittgenstein points out how language is and a big influence on on Harumas, How language, the words, the meaning of words, you know, they don't need anything out there in the world forever and ever and ever. Uh, Words are, they mean what the way they're used, their tool, they're, they're sort of like, the way they use this is the way that they acquire any meaning, right? So if I say, if, if, I, if I have an inside joke with Laura or with you, and I say, "oh donuts, and you know that means that I'm about to like um, do a cartwheel. <laughs> this means absolutely nothing to anybody else, but to us it has this meaning, um, Right? Donuts could also mean the the pastry. It could also mean okay. it could also mean something I say instead of a curse word when I'm upset. Oh, donuts! Um, language is all about use and the pragmatic use of it. So perhaps, as you pointed out, this is a language problem.
0: All right. Well, that was really interesting. I I think if we go any further, we might be getting a. a... We might be beating a dead horse, (laughs) Um, (laughs) right? We might. I think we are. Uh, I think I've. I've already probably. The the one thing that we didn't address, yeah, the one thing that we didn't address is whether or not these norms are always at play, which we could spend five minutes talking Mm -hmm. about before closing, if you want. Um, you know, my question was: Are there situations in which Habermasian norms are not at play, or not completely? You know we've talked about hostage negotiations and you know, that's not a normative situation, but the, but, but we're still using language as a negotiator in that situation. So um, is strategic action permissible in that situation? Is it, is it possible for it to be effective in that situation? Because it's a different, different normative framework. And one more thing I wanted to add to that is, you know, depending on who you are in the particular situation, you may have an expectation that a, a politician, a lawyer, a police officer, an advertiser, uh, different kind of important institutional leaders in general, someone may assume that these actors are not likely to be transparent and may, may not have your best interest at heart. And on the other hand, you know these types of actors may feel that they have to be strategic to do their jobs, which means it's more of a systemic problem because their subjects, depending on the context, aren't likely to comply Without protest, you know, I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to learn about your uninteresting policies or products and so on. So there are these um, other types of norms that are situational that are in play that we have to consider, I think.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's and this is where we would have to, this is where it would be interesting to read the way Haramas connects his pragmatic theory of language to a theory of social order. To a theory of law, to a theory of norms, to a theory of the state, right? Um, this is just one small component. It's very much, we're looking at this very much in the abstract. Um, the way that language works, the way that it functions, if we accept all of Ravram claims, if we look at language as a medium, um, and we accept the claims that he makes about the way it works and what it sort of forces us, the way it opens up to validity claims and so forth this is different from saying in a given context of real life with laws and with customs and with people's ideas and prejudices and presuppositions and the way science might work at the specific moment in time what people believe about the world. Um, this is, this is a more filled out picture, right? Which I think we'd have to get to uh, in which language nonetheless would still be according to how it was working the way it does and doing its saying and forcing people to do kind of like have to uh, Hit its walls, right? The walls of the pragmatic walls of testing, which which uh, force us to use reasons to back up our claims and so forth. Um, and yet, this yeah. is in real life, in social life, this is always an uneven process in which some people, uh, in which communication is almost never transparent, in which the standard and in which the conditions for communication are always uneven, in which some people have access to, um, Expressing their their ideas, and some people don't. In which some people speak language, some people don't speak the language the same way, and may not be as an articulate in a specific forum. In which some have edu- the education to be able to use rhetoric and vocabulary in a specific public setting, and some um, because they speak a certain way in our first certain communities would wouldn't be able to access that space. And so, I think that's a more difficult, you know, um, set of questions to answer.
0: Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, I am uh my brain is about to stop working. <laughs> so, um I I think that is an interesting topic you. and to, probably the, I mean, we're, the brains we're... of all our
1: listeners at this point. But I <laughs> I hope they I hope some of them stuck all the way through and enjoyed
0: something about yeah, this. Yeah, I hope so. Loony, I actually had fun with this one. I had a lot of fun with this one, so I hope uh, our listeners had fun with it also. Awesome. So did I did. The the 10 the 10 listeners we have <laughs> Hi, hi, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> hi,
1: Laura. She's not even a listener. Laura's not listening. I still oh, love yeah. her. <laughs> um,
0: I I do think uh, that uh, um, we should strive toward having difficult conversations and solving our problems through a rigorous dialectical process. And I would like to see more and more people be invited into that kind of intellectual Coffee house space to have these conversations. <laughs> and, um, you mean Reddit? <laughs> well, Reddit's a digital version of that. Yeah. No. Uh, and I think podcasting too. I mean, do anyone. You, do you with... think Reddit
1: is open towards, is it tailored, is a, is a form of, is a setting for communication where
0: the communicational dimension of language stands out? Oh. Uh, it depends on the subreddit. <laughs> I've, I've been on in, in certain groups that, are having some really interesting conversations. Of course, you never know who who's actually writing these things. That's a hard question, and you know, kind of gets into Stiegler's speak about crowdsourcing mm-hmm. and um, kind of uh, exteriorizing knowledge. And uh, it's hard to say if something like a Reddit or a Twitter is benefiting our knowledge, if it's reinteriorizing knowledge, or if it's um, making us more vain and less yeah. moral. And less able to have conversation in the long run, so that for me remains to be seen.
1: Yeah, and these 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 uh, media, right, uh, like Twitter and these platforms, structure communication in a very unique way, right? And we would have to ask the question: Well, are they do they align with a with enhancing a communicative dimension oriented towards understanding? Uh, for example, Twitter's decision to have us. Be able to use a certain amount of uh, of characters and being able to like and retweet and what kind of communication it foster and all these different all these different things,
0: right? Yeah.
1: I guess these are more uh, these are more uh, things to keep discussing in future episodes.
0: Yeah. I am always going to be bringing the, a, a practical communication perspective to things. That's what I do. So, um, <laughs> And I'm always going to be
1: muddling and, and confusing everybody with
0: philosophy. But well, trying I think not to. You did a, a great job teaching us about Habermas today. Thank so, you, Jason. Um, congrats to you. Well, You're an excellent teacher, professor.
1: Not yet, but we'll keep uh, we'll keep going next time and, and uh, hopefully bringing up some and agreeing about some interesting things in the future.
0: All right, Juan. Good night. Good night, Jason. Take care.
1: Do you enjoy what you're hearing on Panoptic pod is the application of philosophy, media theory and communications theory to everyday practical contexts, something that you find interesting or useful. If so, Please consider supporting our podcast through Patreon at patreon.com panopticpod. You can also access our Patreon through our website panopticpod.com. There you can also drop us a line or a comment. Jason and I are always looking for ways to improve this podcast. Your support and comments will help us in that endeavor.